Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I'm speaking to thoughtful people. Consider what I say. Is not the cup of blessing that we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all shared the one bread. Look at the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices partners in the altar? Am I saying that idols or food sacrificed to them amount to anything? No. I mean that what the pagans sacrifice is to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot take part in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or are we trying to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we really stronger than he is? You've seen that Paul has brought in the issue of what we call communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And I just want to kind of guide you a little bit on this. This is not the passage of Scripture that defines for us our theology about communion. We'll get more on that structure in the 11th chapter. He has brought this in, and if you picked this up as I was reading this, only to demonstrate this dimension of fellowship that happens during communion and try to equate that to the dimension of fellowship that happens when you dine with pagans in their sacrificial feasts. So he is comparing the two. If we have communion with the Lord, and that describes this personal involvement, this relationship we have with him, then he said, on the other hand, if you dine with pagans, don't you understand that's their evil, wicked communion. You are part of that. So he says, to begin this section, so my recommendation is flee from idolatry. In other words, don't have anything to do with idolatry. You are trafficking with demons. You are trafficking with wickedness. You are dabbling with sin. Don't have anything to do with it. Now we have to go back and put this in context for the Corinthian church because that's what they had devolved into. Remember when we picked up this issue of shall we eat sacrificial meats or not? He's been talking this whole time since that about that whole issue and even as we wind up this chapter today, he goes back and picks that up again. So we've never strayed far from this issue of the eating of sacrificial meats in the Corinthian church. So he is saying, you people that consider yourself stronger Christians that don't have any qualms about eating sacrificial meats, he agrees with that to a certain extent. He says there's nothing uh, moral or immoral about food. There's nothing moral or immoral about meat. And Paul's attitude is, I don't care who it was sacrificed to, it's just a piece of meat. But what he is, uh, is addressing is what we sometimes call that slippery slope. That is, when you begin here, if you're not careful, you end up down here. And that's what he's saying. You who began thinking you had the freedom to eat the sacrificial meats and you're okay, 
I notice that some of you have rationalized your way down the staircase to where, well, if it's okay to eat sacrificial meat, then why isn't it okay to eat sacrificial meats at the temple? And if it's okay to, okay to eat sacrificial meats at the temple, maybe during one of their community gatherings, then why is it not okay, since we're already in the temple, to go ahead and accept the invitation from my pagan neighbors, my pagan friends, hey, we're having a great feast tonight. They're having your favorite barbecued ribs. Come on over. So he shows up at the pagan festival sacrificing to idols. And Paul said, you've gone from this to this to this, and pretty soon you are sitting there in pagan sacrificial ceremonies. And you think nothing of it because you have rationalized your way over there incrementally. So that's when he brings in this example of what we call the communion. So when you're doing this, you're communing with your God. When they are doing that, they're communing with your God. Why are you doing that? Now, as a pastor, I ask that similar question so many times as I see members of the Christian community making compromises in their life. And it puzzles me. Why are you participating in this? It wasn't, I'm sure, one giant step. You got there incrementally. You made little compromises along the way until you ended up doing things with people in the wrong places, the wrong time, the wrong circumstances, and you shouldn't be doing this, period. Compromises sneak up on us like that. Now, first I want to suggest from what Paul is trying to tell them here is he's warning them when he says, flee from idolatry. Friends, there are no inoculations against sin. In other words, you cannot get to that time, that place, that relationship in your life with God where you are just free from the temptations of sin or the effects of sin. So no matter what you do, it's not going to affect you spiritually. That's an abuse of grace, and Paul hated grace being abused. He wrote of that in other places. He wrote that very specifically to the Romans when he's talking about grace is there. Grace is wonderful. Grace covers our mistakes. Grace covers our sins. But then he poses this, uh, this uh, rhetorical question and says, I can just envision you asking me right now. So if where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, then, well, let's just sin so we can have all kinds of grace around us. And Paul says, that's not the way it works. You're abusing grace if that's what you do. And that's what these people were doing. They were abusing grace. They took their liberty, as I've said numbers of times in this series, they took their liberties and they turned it into license. That's where the problems begin. And Paul is saying, you cannot get inoculated against sin. You remember he had already told them, beware, any of you that think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Any of you that think you're too good to fall, be forewarned. You're not. You can fall. There is no inoculation against sin. So when Paul calls on the church and the congregation there to flee from idolatry, he is unmistakably making reference to the fact that sin is dangerous and it's not to be trifled with. Now, this is not a new revelation, but it it's not the kind of sermon you're hearing a lot today in the church. I think we have failed to continue to press the point in the church, sin is dangerous, sin is deadly, sin is poisonous, sin is contagious, and we have to be careful that we don't get involved in sin, that it infects us, that it pulls us in. We have to be careful about that. I think the church is getting lax. I think the church is compromising. I think people within Christianity are compromising. I'm just having discussions with uh, our company that here, my daughter-in-law, and we were talking about certain churches that were, were, were marveling at how they're moving the standard out and the kind of things they are allowing in their church today. Now, we have people from all kinds of different walks of life that may come in and walk into our church. We understand that. We don't put barriers at the door and check what kind of life you live. But we are very concerned 
about those who want to attach themselves to the church in such a fashion that it looks like we're affirming their lifestyle. Anybody can attend as long as you don't cause problems, as long as you're not mounting some kind of resistance, as long as you're not living in open rebellion against God. Uh, There's there certain things that, that certainly would not go well in the church, but just come and don't make problems. But if you want to be in leadership, you want to be part of the structure of the church, you want to be recognized for your Christian walk, you better be walking the walk and talking the talk. That's important to make that distinction. Now, in the past week, this, this is so handy because getting ready for this sermon today, uh, I, I put a couple of points down here, and then I noticed since I put this sermon on paper, got it ready, there were a couple of things that happened that worked, dovetailed right into my sermon today. You'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. I just wanted to preface that with this. So here I, I put this this uh, sermon down, and then, then there was this story <clears throat> of this man in Florida who had captured a rattlesnake, and the neighbors found out he had a rattlesnake, so they came over to play with the rattlesnake. And one of the neighbors, and as I'm reading this story, I'm kind of getting the impression that, uh, that they were not necessarily... Uh, they may have been teenagers. They may have been in their 20s. They, they were certainly stupid. I don't, young, young and stupid kind of this way I was impressed with this. But so here they are playing with this rattlesnake. And this one young man says, I'm going to kiss this rattlesnake. And when he went to try and kiss the rattlesnake, the rattlesnake snake struck and bit him on the tongue. Well, obviously, you've got problems. When you've been bit on a tongue by a rattlesnake, they rush him off to the hospital. And this man who owned the rattlesnake said this. He said, evidently, he said, boasted, I can kiss the devil and get away with it. And he said, evidently, he couldn't. <laughs> and everything about that story exemplifies the danger and the foolishness of trifling with sin. Think of the rattlesnake as sin. And think of the number of people that we have probably witnessed in the course of our lifetime that think they can kiss the devil and live to tell about it. And it doesn't work that way. Now, notice there's two ordinances in the church that are mentioned in this chapter. You go back to the opening of the chapter where Paul says they were all baptized unto Moses in the sea, in the cloud. And it's very obvious from that wording there that he is making some sort of a, a parallel between what they did in uniting themselves together under Moses' leadership and what we do in being baptized unto Christ. So you've got the water baptism that has been alluded to in this chapter. Then you come down here where he's now dealing with these people who are compromising and eating in the temple, and he brings up communion. So we've got the two major ordinances of the church mentioned in this chapter. And some scholars think it's very likely that Paul mentioned these two things very intentionally because the people at the Corinthian church thought they had some sort of an immunity to sin because they'd been baptized into Christ and because they take communion. Therefore, their lifestyle was getting very slack because they were doing their religious duties. So Paul brings these things up when he brings up the baptism in, un, unto Moses, and he said, don't you realize how many people died in the wilderness because that was no guarantee? That didn't protect them from the judgment of God at all. And then when he brought up this about the, the uh, uh, communion, he said, you can go have communion in the Lord's house, but if you're going to go have communion with the pagans, that communion in the Lord's house is not going to save you. So these things are not inoculations against sin. So having this false sense of security because of their religious rights, they moved beyond merely eating sacrificial meats, which in and of itself would not have been a spiritual problem, and actually started going and dining with the pagans at their idolatrous feasts. After all, we've been baptized. After all, we take communion regularly. And people, in a shallow sense, do develop that mentality. I know maybe you don't. 
And you, certainly, I don't. But we know people on the fringes of Christianity that they think because I go to church, because I pray at night, that somehow God's going to just dismiss all the things I do in my life that are wrong, and I'm going to go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. You can't kiss the rattlesnake and get away with it. You will die. So in this case, Paul puts up this warning in front of idolatry. He says about idolatry, don't flirt with it. Don't have anything to do with it. Don't traffic with it. He said, I've got one thing to say about idolatry to my friends who proclaim to be Christians. Run. Don't have anything to do with idolatry. It's almost like Paul is taking these people at the Corinthian church and shaking them and saying, what is wrong with you? You are eating with pagans at their idolatrous feasts unto their idols. What is wrong? What are you thinking? And I'm sure their attitude, as they've done this multiple times, is we're okay. I'm okay. I'm going to make it. I'm safe. And, and Paul is saying, you don't have any business being there. Don't try and, and, and soft sell this to me. Run. Get away from it. Get out of there. Don't go there. Don't make up excuses. Don't rationalize. As a Christian, don't have anything to do with idolatry. It's very clear. Now, we could translate that into things that are happening today. I think I'll let the Holy Spirit make that translation. Because I think if you just be sensitive to God, you realize there's things in your life that you're trying to get away with. You realize you are on the fringes of Christianity and you don't feel any judgment coming down out of heaven, bolts of lightning hitting you, knocking you dead, and God must be all right with it and everything's okay. And the Holy Spirit is here to speak to you today and say, what do you think you're doing? Pushing the boundaries out. Come back close to God and get away from these things. Now, there are certain things you just have to run away from. There are certain things you have to stand and fight. We fight spiritual battles all the time. We have armor so that we can fight spiritual battles. Some people have suggested that our armor is all for protecting the front and not for the back. We don't have any protection on the back, so you've got to face the enemy and fight him. And there, a case can be made where, yeah, we have to have a shield, we have to have a helmet, we have the breastplate, we, it's, it, go get them, you know, don't turn and run. But there are certain times, according to Scripture, where it is your obligation to run, get away from it. That is a part of fighting a smart fight. Knowing when you're supposed to stand your ground and knowing when you're just supposed to get out of there because you are outnumbered. And you are outnumbered when you face the sin of idolatry. Paul didn't flatter anybody by saying, hey, I think you're strong enough to be able to dabble in this and you'll be okay. This is not good for Christianity. This is not good for your life. This is not good for the church. Run from idolatry. Will you remember and tie this together that back, I believe, is in the sixth chapter of Corinthians when Paul was dealing with all this sexual immorality that was in the church. Do you remember what his remedy was? Flee sexual immorality. Now he comes to here and he says, flee idolatry. I have just given you two solid cases where Paul did not say, oh, put on the, uh, the armor, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, take up the sword of the Lord. He, he didn't say any of that. He said, forget about the armor, forget about facing your foe, forget about being the hero. He said, when it comes to sexual immorality, when it comes to idolatry, I have one word of advice for you, run. Get out of there. To lose is fatal. You don't have any business tempting and pressing God in those matters. In both cases, the sexual immorality and the idolatry, in both cases, Paul says, run, flee, get out of there. In both cases, Paul emphasizes to them to make his case their exclusive relationship with Jesus Christ. He says in the case of the sexual immorality that if you 
traffic with a prostitute, you become one with a prostitute. But if you traffic with the Lord, you become one with the Lord, and the two are incompatible. You cannot be one with a prostitute, and you cannot be one with the Lord at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. And in the case of the idolatry, he uses the same logic. He says you cannot be one with the demons who worship their gods and have communion with them and also have communion with God. You cannot eat the bread of devils and the bread of God. You cannot sit at the table of demons and the table of God. He's making a clear delineation. You cannot live in both worlds. You have to make a clear-cut decision here. The church would be a whole lot better off in the 21st century if they'd make some clearer decisions about their holy stand. Instead of trying to dabble in a little bit of the world and love God at the same time. That's part of the, un, the disease of the church is the compromise. In both cases, Paul says in his summary statement, bring glory to God. That's your ultimate goal. Glorify God. When he was talking about the sexual immorality, he said your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You should be glorifying God with your body. And in this case, he also says you have to bring glory to God. No, no matter what else happens, you have to realize that that rule of thumb is, is what you're doing glorifying God? So these are very parallel cases. He uses like the same formula to make a similar argument in both cases. Two things. You just can't stand and fight and expect to ever win. Sexual immorality and idolatry. So the summary that Paul gives can be something like this. First of all, he's, he basically says there is no spiritual status you can achieve that makes you immune to sin. Not through partaking of the blessings of God, not through water baptism, not through communion. Hence the grave warning Get away from it. You don't have any protection. Verse 12, let anyone who thinks he is standing take heed lest he falls. The second thing he summarizes is you folks are just getting too cozy with sin. Eating sacrificial meat is one thing, but you've graduated or devolved, really, to actually dining with pagans in their temple and idolatrous feasts. You have crossed the line. And you know what I have found out as a pastor? It is infinitely more difficult to get Christians who have already crossed the line to come back and reestablish the old boundaries than it is to get people not to cross them in the first place. Once they have crossed that, they feel like they have discovered new territory and the preacher is all washed up. You don't know what you're talking about. We're fine. You just can't get people to reclaim I mean, you can, but it's so difficult to get people to reclaim that old standard of righteousness and holiness because they think we've thrown off those shackles. We've done away with those bondages. We've been in bondage long enough. We found a new liberty in Jesus Christ. But God's calling is always a call back to him and never a calling further away from him. So I'm calling on the church. I'm calling on West Side. I'm calling on Christians today to stop that 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 trend that keeps moving a little bit farther away from God. Stop the trend that keeps pulling up the stakes and moving them farther out, that keeps reestablishing boundary lines that makes our territory even larger, encroaching in the areas and the territories of hell. And I'm asking for the church to reconsider, what's it going to take to come back to your first love? What's it going to take to start backing up and saying, we've taken too many liberties. I'm going to start going back the other way and drawing the boundaries in for God. And then the third thing in the summary, as I've mentioned, folks, just have nothing to do with it. Just get away from it. Forget it. Don't worship idols. Don't attend idol worship services. Don't dine with pagans at idol feasts. You're trying to kiss the snake, and it's going to kill you. The only remedy I've got for you. Flee from idolatry. Now, number two, and this is where we make the application more than just the contextual application of this, but how does it relate to us? Because certainly I don't know of any idol temples around here where they're doing animal sacrifices. I've not been invited to any of those feasts. So we've got to have some sort of an equivalence today to make sense out of this. How does this apply to us? because I don't want to bore you to death with what was happening to the Corinthians. We have to take something home with us, right? 
I suggest number two, you can't flee from idolatry if you don't recognize it. See, typically spiritual applications come at two levels almost every time for we who are studying the New Testament at least, and that is it comes at an individual level, a personal individual level, and it comes at a collective level. What's it mean to all of Christianity? What's it mean to the church? And I think we will see that this stays true to form, that the application of this passage must be made collectively, we as a church, and individually, you as a person. So we can loosely define an idol. Anybody here that's been in church for any amount of time, I could call on you right now and you could stand up and you could give me a reasonable definition of an idol. Anything that's between you and God, that would be a good place to start, right? Anything that distracts you from what you owe to God. Anything that robs what you owe to God. All those are idols because this, this, this definition just widens as we think about it. Anything that eclipses the glory that's supposed to be to God, that would be an idol. And Paul summarizes and said, whatever you do, glorify God. It's a good litmus test in helping to discern idols in our modern day and age. If it draws glory away from God, it's an idol. So we don't have the temptation in the 21st century here in Davenport, Iowa, to go and sit in pagan temples before idols and eat sacrificial feasts with them. That's not really our temptation. But what is our temptation? Because you can't flee from them unless you recognize them. So I'm going to help you understand some idols today. Within that context, where Paul says, how does participating in idolatrous feasts glorify God? Then we need to be asking that question, asking that question about maybe things we're doing in our life. How does doing that glorify God? And of course, for the Corinthians, the answer quite simply is it doesn't. And we're probably going to find out that there's many things we do that don't glorify God. And I'm going to make a clarification here. Certainly there's a lot of things we do that don't directly glorify God. Uh, we have various forms of recreation that don't necessarily glorify God. We have hobbies that are not sinful, but they don't necessarily glorify God. We go shopping for groceries. I don't see how that glorifies God. So we do a lot of things that don't necessarily glorify God. But the, the additional element here is that not only does it not glorify God, but it tends to glorify wickedness. And that's where God is not only not glorified, but he's insulted. I mow the lawn. Doesn't glorify God. But it keeps our neighbors happy. And so, you know, somebody is struggling with this. And so, what are, you, what are you saying, Pastor? Are we supposed to sit around and do nothing but religious things and worshipful things all day long? No, we, we, we've got to carry on with life. But that's not the point. It wasn't the mere eating of food that bothered Paul. It was the compromising circumstances surrounding the feast that he objected to. So Paul was basically, basically instructing them, make choices that do not rob God of his rightful glory. Don't travel with traffic with pagans in their idolatrous worship service. They are not honoring God, and you're a part of that. We're living in a very difficult day and age where Christians are being challenged on how they draw the line in this day and age of what you participate in. That's because sinners are pushing the boundaries. They're erasing clear-cut boundaries that have already been set by the church and observed by the church for hundreds of years. And so now we're living in this age where you're trying to figure out, is this right or is this wrong for me to do that? We see that in several news stories that have been very popular in the past two, three, four, five, six years. Christians who run a business who are compelled to participate in things that they morally object to because their business requires them to provide that service. Specifically, 
so I'm not being cryptic. If a Christian photographer is solicited to go and do provide services for a gay wedding, Christians feel like many times that that is a compromise to help celebrate and promote that because it is a conflict with what God tells us is good and right and holy. Other circumstances have been literally people who have bakeries, which for the most part, uh, most of these people really don't care who comes in off the street and buys their donuts and buys their cakes and goes out the door and goes their way. What they object to is somebody comes in and says, concerning a, like a gay wedding, would you make a cake especially for us and would you put writing on there to the love of my life from Wren to Stimpy? And the, the, the Christian baker says, uh, that goes beyond my moral sensitivities. I, you are asking me to be a participant in and, and make celebrations of uh, this event that I'm morally opposed to. And then the government steps in and says, uh, in their interpretation, that because you are a business, you either provide this service or you will be punished or driven out of business. Uh, and, and this has been happening. And we're living in this weird world. Where do we fit in? Where do we draw the line? If the government is compelling us, should you choose to provide services, you must provide them to anybody. If I would walk into a, a Muslim deli and say, uh, I'd like a, a load of pork sausage to go. We understand how offended the Muslim would be because they can't touch pork. They can't have anything to do with it. But if, if we would insist, we would be certainly putting them in a bind of their religious objections. Unfortunately, in our culture today, our society today, all of the bias is against the Christians, and we don't see any of the others who have religious convictions. They, they'll, they'll throw you out, and nobody brings lawsuit, and the government doesn't care. So there is a bias that's going on here, but that's not the point of my sermon. Where do we fit in? How do we function in this society where there appears to be times where we are being forced to compromise the very core of our moral beliefs? And it's difficult for us to be able to do that without being persecuted, forced to do something against our moral sensitivities, sued if we don't. But we have to be careful in identifying those things that are offensive to God and preserving our integrity, our moral integrity as well. Now, where do these idols exist today in our society? Here's a few examples of idolatry that it infects Christianity. Number one, idolizing people. Donna just put on Facebook the other day, Johnny Depp's in town, and everybody's really excited. And the reason I bring that up is because this is a point that I'm making here in my sermon. Where are the idols today? I don't know how many of you go gaga when you're in the presence of somebody famous, but I don't give a flip. I mean, I'll treat them as people. That's fine. But I am not going to be one of those people that shakes her hand and says, I'll never wash this hand again. You wouldn't be happy with me if I never washed this hand again. I wouldn't be on the greeters team if I swore never to wash this hand again. Idol worship, person worship, people worship, celebrity worship. And, you know, our culture is jam-packed with this celebrity mentality. Celebrities uh, really, for the most part, are not self-made. Sometimes they try to aspire for that, but they're created by the people around them who idolize them, who fawn over them. Some people inherit fame just as an innocent result of their deeds or their attributes. I have an uncle that was at... at uh, Disney World down in, in uh, Florida many years ago, and he said, we saw Billy Graham riding a tram through Disney World. He had uh, kind of a, a coat on and the collar pulled up and his hat down, and it kind of going incognito. Now, I do not for one minute believe that Billy Graham aspired to be famous. 
aspired to be a celebrity. But by virtue of the fact of what he had done in his ministry, it became difficult for Billy Graham to be in public without being thronged by the people. It's Billy Graham. Let's get his autograph. Let's talk. Let's hear a sermon. You know? So he, he had been caught up in this, this difficult position. But some people... Uh, are famous just because of what they did. Everybody knows Einstein. The, uh, uh, the name itself is synonymous with smart people. Bill Gates, Winston Churchill. Hitler is a name that is synonymous with evil and depravity. But then there's some people who want fame, and they work to achieve celebrity status, and their followers reinforce that. And, and then, then look at the people who achieve fame and fortune. They want to be famous. They don't want to be idolized. They want to be the most recognized face in the world so that when they go out in public, they wear sunglasses and scarves and hats and coats so nobody recognizes them. So how is it you, you aspire for being famous and then you try to hide your fame? Common people create celebrities. And that's the problem. Now, that's just in the world. My problem is the celebrity mentality that's creeping into the church. I certainly don't get nervous or excited about the prospect of meeting famous people. They're just people. I don't, our culture idolizes famous people. I see people, because Facebook is an open book into people's lives. I know more about people, my friends, and you through Facebook than you would ever stand and tell me to my face. But you go hide behind a computer and you open your life up. So we're getting this peek into people's lives. And I see how people idolize other people. They talk about some famous musician that's going to be somewhere. And, and they'll just, oh, I, I just want to meet them. I just, I, I just love them. I just adore them so much. If I, could just, if I could just touch them, if I could just meet them. I knew a lady one time. She was a very reserved lady. And uh, you would never expect anything like this to come out of her mouth because she was so prim and so proper and so, so reserved. But when you started talking about professional wrestling, she got all excited about Hulk Hogan. She said, I just want to touch that skin. <laughs> this whole celebrity thing. But we see the absurdity of it, we who ha have any kind of rational sense. But when we start seeing this celebrity thing come into the church, we get caught up in celebrity worship. We have to be careful. We absolutely cannot put leaders on this pedestal. We cannot worship people in the church world. I, I knew of people in my church in years past that they couldn't make it to church for a solid month. It was so sporadic. But you let Benny Hinn come to town. And they were every night, every night for that crusade because that was a celebrity. This guy walks in the power of God. This guy, man, he's got healing. And it was, I'm just using him for an example because that was a real example. But any other number of, of uh, high power celebrity class ministers that would come through, they were right there, right in the midst of it. But you come and just, that, that, that daily walk of serving God and coming to church and just praying, that was not interesting to them. They're going to have that elevated experience. Number two idol that we find affecting the church is the worshiping of worship. One of my deep concerns for the 21st century church is how worship is tending in many cases to replace the centrality of the preaching of the word. I've been in churches where the worship was great and there was nothing but pablum coming from the pulpit. The power was in the worship, but there was no word. I am philosophically opposed to that being the central center, the centerpiece of the church. I mean, worship's great. I, I, I have music flowing in me. I love music. I love worship. But you cannot build a church on worship. You cannot worship worship. You've got to build it on Jesus Christ. You've got to build it on his word. That's where the real meat is. Number three, the idol of cultural, cultural relevance in the 21st century church. There's a trend in our church today, in the American church, for pastors to search for sermons that are going to appeal to people and attract crowds. I 
don't put together sermons to appeal to you. I put together sermons to minister to you. I don't put together sermons to draw crowds. I put together sermons that will challenge them with the truth that maybe they're not being told anywhere else. And I'm sure I'm not the only pastor in town that does this, but I'm concerned about those that do not. Cultural relevance has become the defining force in so many churches. They're called seeker-sensitive churches. And I know it's a very, very broad term, and I don't want to put down the entire concept of trying to make your church at least where people want to be there. You can be rude and drive them off. That doesn't make you a godly church. But, but the, the, the extremity of being the seeker-sensitive church is compromising values. We should never be compromising because you think if we stand for these things, visitors may not come. Well, Jesus had that problem too. Had a lot of people following him until he got down to preaching that this is my body, eat my body, drink my blood, and if you don't do it, you're going to die in your sins. And many walked away from him and walked no more with him because he had preached the truth and the truth offended them. So be it. There was an article that came out this week about the shocking decline of the Presbyterian Church, USA. It is unquestionably on the skids, shockingly on the skids. It's the result of some of the compromising decisions that this denomination has made in recent years as they moved to ordain homosexual priests in their church. People started leaving. They are hemorrhaging. They are dying. The church was trying to stay relevant to American culture, and they were trying to be politically correct, and they changed the truth of God into a lie. That's idolatry. In their mad pursuit for cultural relevance, truth has been prostituted out. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, he scolds the church because they did three things. You're chasing after another Jesus, you're chasing after another spirit, and you're chasing after another gospel. Three problems of the dying American church. They preach a Jesus that requires no discipline of his followers and no cross to bear. They chase after another spirit that entertains instead of one that guides and convicts. They preach another gospel that tickles and pleases and bends to cultural whims instead of striking them with the force of a heavenly hammer. That's idolatry. Number four, the idolatry in the church's tradition. In recent history, recent church history, relatively recent church history, tradition has been one of the worst offenders in the catalog of idols in the church. Tradition, people that are settled into traditions that has displaced the truth. They started off with customary habits, which became traditions, which became sacred cows. And then whenever you kill sacred cows, you pay a hefty price for that. Woe to the person who dares to touch a sacred cow. We have done it this way for this many years. That's an idol, people. I mean, we can talk about idols in the world, but the church has their idols, a piece of furniture that's been there for so long that it's no longer relevant. Somebody moves it and somebody gets mad and it's gone. It's an idol. We've seen historically just in the transition years of Westside for the past 10 years, this kind of thing happened. The first Sunday that I made the decision that we didn't have enough hymn books for everybody. We're no longer using the hymn books because we were already accustomed to the, over, to the, to the screens. And the hymn books, many of them we had, were rat, tattered and torn and in disarray. And I made the decision, just gather them up and we'll put them away. And the first Sunday I heard about, where's the hymn books? You haven't used them in years. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? The first time that I brought these walls out on these rooms that we built back here. There were a few rows of pews that were missing. And I promise you, it's the honest to God truth. A few people walked in, their pew is gone, they left the church. What have you done with my pew? I've got, I've got lots of room. Pick one. No, my pew's gone. It's idolatry. 
nothing but pure and simple idolatry. It's nauseating to God. Paul said, flee, get away from it. Have nothing to do with idolatry. Jesus addressed the problem with the Jews on multiple occasions. He denounced the Pharisees for making the word of God ineffective through their what? Traditions. Can we be honest enough to distinguish between traditions and moral absolutes? Number five, sensationalism. And this is a recurring problem for the church. People have a tendency to chase after manifestations that have been dubbed signs and wonders. Makes it sound real biblical, doesn't it? One West Coast church has taken that phrase, signs and wonders, and they've turned it into this. Because some of the things that are happening are certainly not, have no biblical foundation. So they said, these are signs that make you wonder. <clears throat> they sure do make me wonder. No, no, this has become a very, very popular explanation of things going on in their church. And within the Catholic religion, they've had their own versions of the signs and wonders. People make pilgrimages around the globe to see bleeding statues, weeping portraits, random appearances of Virgin Mary, or faint images of Jesus that appear on burnt toast or pancakes or on the walls or in some flower that grew. And then, just like I said, there's things that happened this week. It was Janie Ernst that just put it on Facebook, cut up watermelon open, there was a heart in the bottom of it. And Janie said, maybe I should put this on eBay. Well, that would be a good fundraiser for Westside. <laughs> because people will buy that. Case in point, right now, there is a rock on eBay that bears this eerie resemblance to Mother Mary and baby Jesus for sale for $9,999. Because people are into sensationalism. In Quebec, there's a cook in a retirement home out there that sliced open a potato that happened to reveal the shape of a cross on the inside of the potato. The senior residents immediately claim that the potato is a sign of their destiny, and it brings them great comfort and great security to have that potato there. So they dried it, and they preserved it, and they put it in a special display case because this was a message for God and for all generations to behold. Now, within the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, because I've told about it happens sometimes in the Catholic Church, it certainly happens in the world, but now uh, you've got the Pentecostal Charismatics, they have equally absurd stories to tell about sensationalism. Popular hot spots in our nation where it's purported that angel feathers keep falling on people, that gold dust rains out of the atmosphere and lands on everybody. Anybody walks out with glittery skin because gold dust was following. In, and, and mysterious clouds just seem to appear in the sanctuary as it comes from the ceiling and this cloud settles down over there and people are making pilgrimages to go to these places wherever this is happening and gather feather and gold dust and breathe in the clouds because we are intrigued by sensationalism. It's an idol. Some students of prophecy in one of these churches from their, their, their prophetic school, they have a school of prophets. Some students are into grave soaking. How many do not know what grave soaking is? Okay, you're in for a treat. Grave soaking is this practice that these students have developed where they go to the uh, grave of some minister like John Lake who had a, uh, was noted for having a healing ministry. And they lay on that tombstone, they lay on that grave, and they soak up the spirit of that dead minister, hoping that they will walk away with their anointing. And they've made pilgrimages around the world looking for these popular, powerful ministers in their days and lay on the grave and soak. It's idolatry. God never intended for people to behave like that in his kingdom. Paul emphatically told the church, idolatry is unacceptable. I'm going to summarize this and close. Verses 23 through 33, I will not read those. 
and it'll only take me a couple minutes to cover the summary of those verses. But Paul then, after he says all these things to the Corinthian church about their issue of the eating of meat and the not eating of the meat and the strong who eat it and the weak who are offended by it and the strong who compromise because they ate the meat and ended up in the pagan idols, he summarizes it all in the next verses as he says, here's everything in a nutshell, people. First of all, everything is lawful. He's, he's being a bit hyperbolic, I understand. There's some things that certainly are not lawful. Stealing's not lawful. But he's talking within a context. He said, things are lawful. But he said, not everything is necessary. Not everything is beneficial. And we have a responsibility as Christians to use wisdom you can't just go to the Bible and say, well, I don't see what the Bible says I can't do this. I must be free to be able to do this. And Paul says, why don't you use a little wisdom? What's the wisdom in doing that? Maybe you're going to influence somebody the wrong way. Maybe you're going to open up the door for something you don't want open into your family. You don't want opened for your church. Everything might be lawful, but use some wisdom. It's not all good. Number two. Don't be so wrapped up in yourself that you give no consideration to the impact your life's choices may have on your Christian brothers and sisters or may reflect on your church. Number three, he says, eat anything in the marketplace you want without question of conscience. But then, he says, if you're invited to eat in the home of an unbeliever, don't question what they're serving them. Just, just grow up. He's, he's speaking to the weaker Christians now that are so easily offended. He's giving them some discipleship. He said, don't worry about the meat. Don't worry about eating in an unbeliever's home. But he said to the strong, if the immature truly are going to stumble because of something you do, be willing to take that into consideration. Don't offend them just because you think you have liberty. That means we're living in a community and we should care about how our actions and our lifestyles and our choices affect other people. We really should. We shouldn't just be so hard-hearted and say, I don't care what you think. Get over it. Deal with it. I'm going to do what I want to do. I've got liberty in Jesus Christ. And Paul said, that's not the way we work as a community. Next, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, let this be your guiding principle. Make sure God is glorified in your actions, in your attitude. And the final point is this. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. If we are truly interested in winning the lost, if we are truly interested in discipling the weak, we have to understand that sometimes our actions negatively impact other people. It's not all about you. If you are part of the church, you care about how your life impacts others. And that's how Paul summarizes it, to bring all these problems in the Corinthian church down to just get along. Quit taking advantage of grace and quit nitpicking your brother just because you have a problem with him. But for those who truly, truly might be tempted with you Christians going over there and eating in the pagan temple, you might be sending somebody to hell because you've opened up something that they can't handle. It's just getting along and being sensitive and loving God and loving each other.